I want to welcome those of you that are in the house, those of you that are joining us online. Uh, we've been in our Build the Church series for several weeks now, and I know that when we say that word, church, means a lot of things to a lot of different people. Some people hear a place where they found hope, where they came to know Jesus. Other people see a place where they were hurt and had to nurse those wounds, and still more feel nothing when they hear the name church, because they have no exposure, no context. But for most of us, unless somebody physically made you come here today, uh, you showed up expecting to worship in some form or fashion, to be inspired, to be taught, or to meet the, the presence of the living God, right? That's the goal when we gather, is that we will worship, and God will show up, and we will be inspired, moved, encouraged, whatever it is, that God seeks to plant in our lives. And this is not a new phenomenon to our culture. Our spiritual ancestors, the Israelites, were in slavery in Egypt for about 400 years. And when they came out, they wanted to worship because God had done some amazing things, right? He parted seas, he'd done play, like it was amazing times. And so they're like, we need to worship. And so God solved that problem by giving them very specific details for building what was called a tabernacle. And so this was painstakingly created to be portable because they're gonna be in the wilderness for a long time, but this is a place where they could gather and they could worship. And the basic layout of the tabernacle is it starts as a courtyard, and then within that courtyard, there's a tent. And the first room inside the tent is called the holy place. It's a pretty good name, right? Like if you're going to build something and you call it the holy place, you're probably pretty proud of it. Well, separating that room was a veil, and the next room was called the most holy place. <laughs> so you can see we're stepping it up as we go in, right? But the most holy place was not something that you just walked into cavalierly, right? There was a reason that heavy curtain was there. Because only one person got to go in there, the high priest, and only he one time a year, and only after he had observed several rigorous rituals. In the reading of Leviticus 16, I counted about 14. There's probably more of that because I like stopped after that. I was like, this is a lot. I mean, there's things about him washing. There's things about what he wears, what he's got to go around and do in there with the sacrifice. It is a lot. And this was something that they took very seriously. And right here at the top of Leviticus, we'll see why. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die, for I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. Now, I'm sure you probably rolled up to church today with some anxieties. Am I going to get here on time? Am I going to get here, you know, in time to get my coffee? You know, how am I going to get the kids checked in? I doubt one of your anxieties was if I walk in this auditorium and meet the presence of the living God, I might die, right? Probably not one of your anxieties, but this was a reality that they dealt with at the tabernacle, that you did not just get to walk into the most holy place. One person, one day of the year, to make a sacrifice for the people after observing strenuous rituals and rigorous tasks 
was able to go in there and they had like little bells on one of the garments. And while it doesn't say this in the Bible, I think one of the functions of those bells was to know if he was still alive or not as he's moving around because that's what it meant to go into this sacred, powerful place and be in the presence of almighty God. And so they take this tabernacle and they go into the land that would become theirs and they get some kings and we get to King Solomon and they say, you know what? We need to build a permanent structure. We need a temple where we can go and worship God, right? We're getting, we're stepping up here. We've got this portable thing that's awesome, but now we wanna build something. And man, did they build something. This Solomon's temple was magnificent took roughly 30,000 workers, roughly seven years to build this thing. And it was top of the line. It's one of the wonders of the ancient world and foreign dignitaries would literally travel just to see this marvel. But with all the gold laid vessels and with all the skilled uh, craftsmen that poured into this, this is not why this was the most revered place on the planet in this time. After they had finished the building of the temple, they had a ceremony, for lack of a better term, and Solomon prayed. And when he finished praying, this is what happened. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering on the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. And when all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, he is good and his love endures forever. I think that is the appropriate response when the presence of God in the form of fire rains down from heaven. You take a step back and you say, whoa, we, we need a second to let this simmer down before we go in there. That's a little hot in there. And you fall down and you worship and you cry out, man, God is good, because he sent his presence down here. The Lord has filled this sacred room, but the rules didn't change. You still can't just walk up in there. There's still a high priest on a specific day. And then a few hundred years later, a king named Nebuchadnezzar knocks it all down. But we come back and we see a second temple. This is the one that Jesus visits in his day as he walks the earth. And you can tell from scripture, he's a little less impressed with it than maybe we would be with Solomon's temple. I think his exact words are, you have made this house of prayer a den of thieves or something along those lines. So his estimation of this temple is not very high. But nevertheless, this is still the center of worship for our spiritual ancestors. There's a barrier between God and man. The veil is still in the second temple, and you and I don't get to cross it. Only the high priest, only on the day of atonement, and only when invited and after observing rituals. And that leads us to the most important question that we are going to ask today. So what? So what? Jason, you've just walked me through thousands of years of temple history, which might be cool if I could go visit it, but since it was destroyed by Rome in 70 AD, I can't go visit it, so thanks for the history lesson. Can I go get lunch now? Perhaps true, except for the fact that Jesus walked on this earth. He was born of a virgin, he lived a sinless life, and ultimately chose a wrongful execution where he was brutally tortured 
and murdered. And we pick this up in Matthew where there's a seemingly inconsequential detail that when we look at it in the context of temple worship literally changes the course of human history. Matthew records, and when Jesus had cried out in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. The moment that Jesus dies, the veil is torn from top to bottom. The curtain is torn. This was a veil that the priest used to describe as the barrier between earth and heaven, right? That's how sacred this was. That's how dangerous this room was, that they felt that that veil was all that separated the earth realm from the heavenly realm. And when Jesus dies, it gets ripped right down the half. This had to be one of the most confusing events in Israelite history. Because for thousands of years, you're taught that room is dangerous. Don't just go there. Only the priest is allowed there. The spirit of the living God lives in that room, and you don't just approach that any kind of way. And now that room is no more dangerous than your closet, your spare bedroom, or your office. It's little more than the shed in your backyard. The room goes from being the most sacred place on the planet to nothing in an instant. Why? Because upon Jesus' death, there is no more barrier between God and man. Anyone can walk in there. Anyone can be in the presence of the living God without fear of their lives. In fact, he gives life more abundantly, right? The the author of Hebrews drives this home, and it's not going to appear up there, and I'm not going to tell you where to find it. You're going to have to look for it, because I just want you to listen to it. I just want you to hear it. This summarizes so perfectly what's happening in this moment. He says, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. This, This describes temple worship, right? Every day the sacrifices. Once a year the high priest goes and make the sacrifice. It never ends. Every year got to be done again. Every feast got to be done again, right? It's an inferior system that could never make us right with God. As long as that system is in place, there must be a barrier. But when this priest, referencing Jesus, offered for all time the one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are becoming holy. That's us. Not that we're holy, but we're on the way to becoming holy. And while we're on that way, he has made us perfect in God's sight. No more need for protection in the form of a veil because Jesus removes it by making us perfect in God's sight. We now can approach him whenever we desire. No more priests needed. No more blood sacrifice needed. Why? He ended all that. Because he is the perfect sacrifice that Jesus sees when he looks at us. And that's awesome. But it gets better. Jesus comes up from the dead. He reappears to his disciples and he teaches them. But then he says, hey, I got to go away. 
And they say, that's not good. We don't want you to go away. He says, no, you don't understand. It's better for you that I go away. Because when I go away, I'm gonna send the Spirit. And the Spirit is gonna encourage. And the Spirit is gonna teach. And the Spirit is gonna convict. It's better for you that I go away. And in Acts chapter two, Jesus makes good on his promise. Right, the the disciples receive the Spirit and chaos ensues. There's miracles. People are speaking in their own language and people are hearing them in different languages. People have no idea what to make sense of this amazing thing that's happened. And so they start saying, it's miracles. You speak in one language and we hear it in our own language and other people say, no, there's no miracles. Those guys are just drunk. And so Peter delivers what's quite possibly the most blistering message in the, in the history of scripture. He stands up and amidst this confusion, he cuts a straight line down the middle of it and he starts it with, we're not drunk, it's only nine o'clock. <laughs> Weird way to start a sermon, right? It's like if I came up here and guys, don't worry, I'm not drunk. It's only 11.57, right? But that's how he starts it. He says, your worldly explanation defies logic. We're not drunk. What you're seeing is what God promised. He cites the prophet Joel, and he says, look, God through the prophet Joel said the spirit would come down in these days, and then Jesus promised it before he left, and we saw him. So guess what? You guys all killed the Messiah. You're in big trouble because we saw him back and he said he'd send the spirit and you killed him. So guess what? You don't want to meet him until you receive the spirit too. You better fall down and repent and receive the spirit that he's coming down. And guess what? People did it. And there's just fire raining down and it's this crazy time and it says the church grew exponentially because the spirit of God was coming into them. You have to imagine how confusing and difficult this would be that for a people, for their whole lives, and to stay away from that, that stuff will kill you. That's only for priests. That's not even really for priests. That's for one priest, and he only gets it for a few minutes. And now it's just raining down from heaven on them. And they have no idea what to do with this. And so we see in scripture, it keeps repeating, right? It keeps repeating, and Paul kind of summarizes the Holy Spirit coming down into you and me, and all of us who believe that we've done wrong, we've walked away from God, because we've walked away from God, we stand correctly judged, and Jesus paid the penalty for that death on the cross. All of us that believe that, we receive the Holy Spirit, and this is what Paul says to us, to you and me. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, that word would have resonated in his day. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who you have received from God? So we have walked through 80% of scripture this morning. We've gone from Leviticus to Corinthians so that I could deliver one sentence to you and have it make sense. You are the temple of the living God. You are the embodiment. In your vessel, in you, lives the same essence, the same spirit, the same power, the same love, the same grace 
that the Israelites were afraid to even approach. That's us. Don't believe me? Here's what Peter says. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. No more need for priests. You know why? You're a priest. I'm a priest. He's a priest. She's a priest. We are the priesthood, a royal priesthood. We are the temple. Why do we exist? It's at the back half of that verse. We exist to declare the excellencies and the marvelousness of the one who called us from darkness to light. And this system is better. Because where people used to have to come hundreds of miles, not to go in the temple, to just be in the same city as the temple, we take that temple everywhere. This is portable temple. It goes into offices. It goes on baseball diamonds. It goes into schools. It's in geometry classrooms. It's on PE fields. It's on the battlefield. It's in counseling offices. It's in poetry. It is everywhere. Do you know why? Because we are the temple of the living God. We are the sacred space. We are his ambassadors making a plea, calling out how marvelous he is so that a dark world might come to him. Which leads us to the second most important question that we'll ask today. Do you feel that way? I took a long time, most of our time together today to walk through all that scripture so we could see what God says so that we could ask the questions of ourselves. Do you believe that? Do you feel that way? Because God says it's true and where you and God disagree, you are wrong. I like simple things. That is a simple thing. Where I disagree with God I am wrong. I am the temple of the living God. You are the temple of the living God. And you and I do not have the authority to disqualify what he has qualified. We do not have the authority to call bad what God has called good. If he says it, it's true. And he says that you and I are the temple of the living God. And so we must believe it or we must be wrong. Those are the choices facing us. But I'll admit, we don't feel that way. We love to disqualify ourselves. I'm too fat, I'm too skinny, I'm too old, I'm too young, I'm too tired. One of my favorite, I don't know enough. You're right, you don't know enough. Thankfully, we rest on his wisdom and not ours. You don't know my past. I don't. But he does. And according to Peter, he still chose you. You don't know what I've done today. I don't. You don't know what I'll do in the future. I don't. You don't know what my marriage looks like. You don't know what my life looks like. You don't know how unqualified I am. I don't. But he does. 
And he still chose you to be the temple of the living God. We do not have the authority to disqualify what God has qualified. But we are in good company when we do. I think at most points, oh, I think that the vast majority of people who come to know Jesus at one point doubt their identity and purpose, right? Because our identity is that we are the temple of the living God and our purpose is to be used by him to call people out of darkness into light, right? That's our identity and our purpose. And it's huge. And we get nervous. And so we disqualify ourselves, which we, we can't do. And we're in great company with that. One of Jesus' own followers' name is Thomas. You might know him by his rather ruthless nickname, Doubting Thomas. This is how this man is known, as Doubting Thomas. And if that is not an indictment of how we define ourselves by our failures in Christian culture, I don't know what is. He's not known as man who left everything to follow Jesus for three years, Thomas. But he did. He's not known as man who followed Jesus to heal Lazarus, even though he might die, Thomas. But he did. Jesus says, hey, we're going to go heal this guy. Thomas is like, we might die, but all right, I'll go anyway. He's not known by that. He had one moment in his life that's recorded where a friend of his came and said, hey, guess what? The guy we all saw die is alive. And he went, eh, I'm probably going to need to see that for myself. That's what he did. And so for the rest of history, Guy is known as Doubting Thomas. And he walked with Jesus. And if he had doubts, I think it's okay for us to have them too. But I'll do you one better than that. Right? John the Baptist. Jesus walks up. John the Baptist points at him and says, hey, there's the Lamb of God that will take away the sin of the world, right? And the first century audience would have known what that is. They'd know sacrifice. They'd know temple. They'd know it in and out. They'd know he was pointing, say, hey, there's the Messiah. They would know that. He points at him and says, there's the Messiah right there walking up to me. I am not fit to tie this guy's sandals. This is how he identifies John's a big deal. Jesus starts gaining in popularity. The disciples come to John, John, and they say, John, what should we do? Like, he's getting really popular. It's kind of getting in on our ministry there. What should we do about that? And John is like, absolutely nothing. Like, I have to become less so that he can become greater, right? This is a guy that gave his life, right? John is a, a, a lot of times described as preparing the way, right? Well, Jesus is the way, and John understands the distinction between the one who prepares the way and the one who is the way. But in a moment towards the end of his life, he goes through a little crisis. He's in prison, and he's about to die, and he knows this. And so he sends his disciples to ask Jesus a question, and here's what he asks. When the man came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and what you have heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are healed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble 
on account of me. And I'm thinking, Jesus, you could have just said yes. <laughs> right? Like, I mean, could have just said yes. Like, yeah, I'm the Messiah. Guy, guy is in prison. Like, he's about to die. And you're not going to go save him. At least you could do is put his fears to rest. But that's exactly what Jesus did. And John would have known that because John was on the hunt for Messiah. He was on the hunt for Jesus Christ. And so he would have had those passages in Isaiah that Jesus just quoted memorized to the syllable. And he would have been weighing contenders as they come up, said, nope, he doesn't match. Nope, he doesn't match. There you go. There's the one that fits the prophecies in Isaiah. So that's how Jesus answers him. He says, trust your God. Trust your scripture. Trust what your eyes have seen. But most of all, trust in me. I am who I say I am. Your life has not been wasted. You are going to die. But you know what? You will also truly live. And watch what's about to happen. Because I'm about to turn this place upside down. When I make my church the temple of the living God. And then he goes on kind of this rant, if it's not disrespectful to say that Jesus rants, and he, he finishes it with this line. He says, I tell you, among those born of a woman, there is none greater than John. So I hold out Thomas and I hold out John as two examples of great men of God that doubted their identity and their purpose and needed some reassurance to walk the walk that they were given to walk. And I say that to say this, doubt is not the evil that we make it out to be. Doubt, in most cases, is a very natural part of making your faith your own, growing in your faith, and knowing Jesus at a deeper level. Because if you have the courage to surface those doubts, if you have the courage to ask the tough questions, Jesus will meet you there. He answered John's question. He showed up to Thomas and said, hey, take a look at these. I'm real. We have this stigma about doubt, that doubt and faith are opposites. To me, doubt is a gate towards our destination. But it's one that it takes courage to walk through because you could just sit on your doubt as an excuse to not move as the temple of God. Like I have, I have doubts. Well, you better settle those things because the answer to the question, who is Jesus, literally changes everything. There is no aspect of the human experience that is left untouched by how you answer that question. So I would say surfing and, and examining those doubts is probably one of the most important things you can do. And a lot of times that takes community and we wanna help with that. We have a group of people that meets Thursday nights and we call this group Alpha. And that's what this group is about. It is a place where Christians, non-Christians, people with questions, people with doubts can come together and learn and experience the growing of faith through the examinations of questions that surround our faith. Why do I think that's important? Because you are the temple of the living God because I am the temple of the living God. And no matter how many doubts we have, we do not have the authority to declare ourselves inadequate when we have been chosen by the living God 
as a priesthood, as a living temple. That sermon that consistently runs in the back of your head, you know the one. Your interior monologue that preaches you lies. We are our own worst enemy. I always think when Jesus says pray for your enemies, he's saying pray for yourself too. Because I, that, that voice in the back of my mind may be my worst enemy, telling me who I am, telling me why I'm not good enough, redefining me. That voice does not have the authority to disqualify what my God has qualified. I need to preach my best, myself better sermons, and you do too. You need to preach yourself. I am the temple of the living God. The same spirit that made the holiest place so scary and so revered and so powerful is now in me desiring nothing more than to declare the excellencies of God and call those who are in darkness into the light. We forget these truths. We live out alternate truths, which is a fancy way of saying lies. But thankfully, God in his wisdom made a way for us to remember that. And we call that communion or the Lord's Supper. So if on your way in, you grabbed one of the cups and one of the breads, you can go ahead and kind of prepare that now and we'll take it in a minute. But if not, you can just kind of put a finger in the air or a hand in the air and someone will bring that to you and take care of that. But while they're getting that settled, I want to encourage you, those of you that are still on the fence, is Jesus who he says he is? I want you to come to settle that question. If you're hearing it for the first time, if you're seeing that for the first time, if you're believing that for the first time, then God has made you and I brothers and sisters. He's made us a family. We would love to talk to you after the service day. You can come right up here to the prayer room. You can go right out there to the circular desk. People are literally waiting anxiously for those of us in that room that for the first time said, I've done wrong. I believe that Jesus paid for that wrong on the cross. And I too am now a temple of the living God. We'd love to make a connection with you. For those of us that are gonna take communion today, we're gonna have a brief time of reflection before we get in on that. And in this time of reflection, I would ask you, do you believe you are a temple of the living God? Do you believe that you are who he says you are and are you embracing that identity and walking out the glorious purpose? If not, repent now. Repent now, ask for better sermons, ask for the crushings of the lies in the back of your head so that we can be that spirit, spiritually charged force for the kingdom that awakens him in the hearts and minds and those who need him. Let's bow our heads.
church family we're going to prepare to take the bread but before we take it let's remember what it is this bread is his body and that broken body symbolizes the tearing of the veil when Jesus willingly allowed his body to be broken he removed the barrier between God and men so that we could approach boldly with this in mind let's take the bread As we prepare to take the cup, let's remember it for what it is. When his blood was spilt, the perfect sacrifice was given. No more temple worship, no more priests doing the same thing over and over. The lamb has come and we are the new temple. This is called the new covenant. It's the new deal between God and men and it was brought to us through the blood of Jesus Christ. So as we take the cup, let's remember that. Heavenly Father, we do these things in remembrance of you because we are forgetful people. We forget the great, the great pleasure that you take in us. We forget the great love that you have for us. And perhaps most importantly, we forget the identity and the purpose that you have given us through your son, Jesus Christ. Let us embrace the fact, the God-breathed fact that we are temples of the living God. Let us come to understand the truth that we do not have the authority to disqualify what you have qualified. Let us be a people that remembers that both daily and we take of the communion that you've given us. Let us have the courage to surface our doubts and lean on our brothers and sisters as we become the church as you see her in the process of becoming holy but made perfect through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.